Can you use predictive technology and artificial intelligence to stop domestic violence? And exactly what is at stake when you do? This week on Download This Show, trials are underway to do precisely that in Queensland, three years in the making. While this is a very specific incident all around the world, more and more law enforcement agencies are trialling technology like this. So what role should AI have in crime fighting? How transparent should it be? And just how much action should be taken on the advice of a machine? These are all big, complex and nuanced questions, so let's get into it. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show that will look into the future of crime. See, in my mind, like the law and order dung-dung happened then, but it didn't, and that's disappointing for so many reasons. But hey, I tell you what, we've got two really interesting guests this week who we've never had on the show before. Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses, welcome to Download This Show. Thank you for having me. Now, you specialise, and I'm going to get your full title here, and I promise to not mess it up. You are the Director of the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation at the University of New South Wales. Did I get it all in one go? That's pretty good. I know there's some other things as well, but this is something you live and breathe the world of of artificial intelligence and and the longstanding impacts of it. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely right. Yep. Looking at the legal issues on both sides, both what's used in the legal system, including in law enforcement, and also the question around how law should respond to these kinds of technologies. And also joining us is Associate Professor Michael Cowling from CQU. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Now... I wanted to start with the story coming out of of Queensland, which is where you are, Michael, where you're joining us from. Can you explain the tool that Queensland police are trialling and how it works? Indeed. This is actually a a predictive sort of tool, a forecasting tool, and these tools are actually relatively common in in IT. We use them to do things like predict uh, if a tsunami is coming or to uh, do things like speech recognition on your phone, and they're all based on artificial intelligence and often uh, machine learning, which some people might have heard about, or neural networks. But in this particular case, what they're doing is they're running this tool across a whole bunch of data, and they're making predictions and forecasts on that data to try and determine whether or not there's going to be uh, cases of domestic violence in the future. And the idea, I suppose, is that if they can get ahead of the curve on these kinds of things, then they can uh, they can perhaps make some changes or knock on a few doors and see if there's something they can do to adjust things before they actually happen. Right. So the knocking on doors part there is, is really interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because, Professor Leary Bennett-Moses, how, like, how actionable is the data that we're talking about here? Well, I, I, I should say I haven't actually seen the data, but this is not the first time that police have decided to do a kind of knocking on doors, preemptive policing based on a data-driven logic. There was previously an example in New South Wales um, which was used and ended up just being essentially knocking on the doors of a lot of Indigenous young people. So a lot of the time these tools can sound really good, but in fact just drive similar prejudices to um, what might have been seen historically. I do definitely want to get into how biases get folded into data sets, and I definitely want to have a bigger conversation about that. But just, just from a, a starting position, what exactly is it that they've they've sort of outlined that they intend to do with it? We'll, we'll get into the realities of what that may look like in practice, but have they given any indication of what that's actually going to look like, Lyria? They haven't 
said an awful lot. I mean, I've been reading all the different stories and versions of it in the media, but there isn't a lot of information about exactly how they're producing this tool, whether they've done any evaluations on this tool to get a sense of whether they have any reason to believe it'll actually work or that the predictions will be accurate, or for that matter, exactly what they're going to do about it or what they're going to say when they knock on doors. There's not a lot of information at the moment about that kind of detail. Reading between the lines, Michael, what are the sorts of things that you're expecting to see? Look, I, I mean, it, it is a predictive model. So the trick, of course, is, is is that you use as much data as possible to make a prediction or to make a forecast. And the challenge or the, the benefit of getting a machine to do it is that often machines will notice patterns or things that are happening that is outside of what we'd notice as individuals. And I mentioned tsunami warning systems in the past. And the reason that we get machines to do that is that they're just so much better at identifying all of those minute changes in wave height and how that might actually predict a tsunami in a way that a human being just can't. And so what makes sense is to just, from an IT person's point of view, just get access to as much data as you possibly can, feed it all into your predictive model and use that to make these forecasts and these determinations. But I would imagine that Illyria thinks that's a little bit scary perhaps. (laughs) I suppose you get given a right of reply on that one. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit scary. So I think there's a massive difference between trying to predict something like an earthquake and trying to predict something like criminal behaviour, right? So if I'm trying to predict an earthquake, obviously I want as many different measurements as I can that are relevant to that task, right? First of all, there's no issue about what kinds of data I'm allowed to know. There's no privacy issues here. The more the merrier. It's just data about planet Earth. And the more readings I have, presumably the better the models can run. But when people have attempted to take things like earthquake prediction models and use it to predict who's going to commit crime, and that is actually being done. That was the model that drove some of the predictive policing software. It's not always quite as successful, even if you have lots of different data points. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the data points that feed into this system that gives them likely perpetrators. Like, What data are they sucking in to make these predictions? So they've said, for example, they're not going to explicitly use things like race data, but I suppose there's a number of challenges I want to say in response to the what data are they using question. The first one is we should actually be able to know that. If police are going to introduce these kinds of tools, there's no real reason not to be transparent about what they're doing at a very high level, not talking about sharing the specific data that they have, which would obviously be personal information about individuals, but to be able to say, we are going to look at these databases. We're going to look at crime databases. We're going to look at, you know, are they going to look at social welfare databases? You know, what? where are they looking and what kinds of data points are they taking? And I think that's just something that really they should be able to be transparent about because without some kind of transparency, It's very difficult in a conversation like this or in the public at large to work out, are they doing the right thing? Is this a sensible decision? It's a really interesting point. And I guess the thought I have listening to you explain that is that there's got to be, I suppose, presumably a line somewhere, right? Where a a line beyond which too much of the, the algorithm, the understanding out in the open actually makes it easier for people to potentially evade it. But that line seems really fuzzy to me, right? Because it feels like there's a, there's a whole length before you hit that line where in order to really 
have build community sentiment around whether this thing does or doesn't work or we think should or shouldn't be part of our law enforcement arsenal, you've got to have, you know, widespread trust in it. And it seems to me, Michael, it would be very hard to garner that trust without giving people some understanding of exactly what data it's built on, right? Because if you don't give people that understanding, Michael, it feels like, you know, like a bad sci-fi movie. (laughs) You know what I mean? If people don't have that wide community understanding. But tell me if I'm wrong, Michael. Well, I mean, here's the interesting thing, right? Um, from a computer, in defence of our colleagues in computer science, when you're talking about training a machine learning model, to a certain extent, the data that's being input into the system doesn't really matter to the system. Because from the system's point of view, it's just trying to reach a point of, of convergence on the things that it's actually trying to forecast. And so if a piece of data is not relevant, the system just doesn't use that data. That data doesn't help it to converge on a, a forecast or a prediction, right? The idea of, from a computer scientist's point of view is just take every piece of data that you possibly can find anywhere, feed it all into this model, into this system. It will use and not use what it needs to use to come up with that overarching prediction. But I totally understand. I teach privacy as well (laughs) uh, to IT students. And uh, yeah, I totally understand people being a little bit uncomfortable about what data is actually going into the system. But I guess in defense of computer scientists, more data is better when it comes to computer science and data analysis. But I think there's also a question here about appropriateness of different kinds of data for different kinds of purposes. So as I said, if I'm trying to predict, you know, earthquakes, I can take as many different kinds of measurements and get as much data from as many places as possible. But when we're making decisions about things like police knocking on individuals' doors, people do actually care what is the rationale behind that door knock. It can't just be a whole bunch of stuff, lots of data points, I don't know, centres here, and that's what we're going to do, because this has real consequences for people's lives and it has real consequences for the relationship between the police in different communities. So to take an example also from the criminal justice system, but this one's from courts in the United States, one of the data points turned out they were looking at, and this is only because people leaked information online, was whether people's parents had split or were still together. Now, in a sense, yes, maybe that does correlate with dangerousness or likelihood of offending or something else. But I think we'd have real concerns as a society if people were exposed to additional police surveillance or checking in based on something that one's parents did rather than something that one oneself had done. It's just something we a basis on which we don't want decisions made about us. Similarly, it's interesting that they excluded, for example, racial data from this. Why? Because, again, society would feel really uncomfortable, even if there was some kind of statistical correlation with the idea that police are targeting particular you know, racial groups or, or particular ethnic communities in, in the way that they're, they're doing their job, even if some data tool does that. But even just looking at it as a, are we prepared to do a kind of throw all the data at the wall and see what sticks if the decisions we're talking about is how we're policed. The reason computer scientists just throw all the data at it, not not necessarily at the wall, but just at the system, is because that's how you get a high percentage of success in the system, right? So if we're talking about tsunamis or earthquakes, then what you do is you train the system with all of this data until you get to the point where 95% of the time the system can predict, can correctly predict an earthquake or pre- correctly predict a tsunami. And so, I mean, to again, to play devil's advocate, 
if 95% of the time we can prove that this system is correctly predicting a particular outcome, does it matter what data we're feeding into the system if we're getting the right, if we're getting a good predictive output? There's a big question there about how you evaluate a tool like this, right? Mm. So people can throw around percentages of saying, you know, 95% of the time, but obviously there's multiple measurements that are relevant here, false positives, false negatives, and so Mm. forth. And this was flagged before as well, the question of, say hypothetically, this tool was really good at predicting domestic violence in one community, but really bad at predicting Mm. domestic violence in a different community, which is obviously possible because it might pick up character traits of one community's violence patterns over another. Would we be happy then with police using the tool? I think the answer would be it wouldn't just be a question of overall false positive, false negative rates, but ensuring that um, the police were, if you like, protecting all communities or paying attention to violence in different communities, you know, rather than only addressing violence in one. So I think there's there's lots of measurements here that you'd want beyond a simple one-digit sort of score. So part of the question is what you're going to evaluate these kinds of tools for. So I accept that if a tool is demonstrated to be really good, and we we have to then think about what good means, then maybe you can have accountability by demonstrating that the tool is so good that we really ought to be using it in a particular context. The challenge is then what is good, right? And it's not simply a one-line score. It's not simply an overall accuracy type score because those are often ambiguous. It's false positives and false negatives, but it's also the differential impact on the differences in those scores across communities. So you don't want a situation where police have a tool that only identifies, for example, domestic violence in white families and not from other ethnic groups because it will direct all police attention only to that context and leave other victims less protected. Mm. So it needs to you need to understand all of the metrics of a particular tool. But you need to understand what it is before making a decision to deploy it. And more than that, I would argue that that evaluation should be done independently. So not simply the police telling us, but rather an independent evaluation of the tool according to various metrics that we agree are important and that that, that should be public. In other words, we the public should be aware of what are the flaws in the tool, where is it good, where is it not good, and we can have a public conversation about whether we should deploy it. When I say lack of transparency, I don't only mean which data points or what algorithm. I also mean transparency of the program as a whole. How do the police know or what? why why should they or why should we have confidence that this is going to perform a particular way? Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Special episode this week about the use of AI in policing and preventing crime. Our guest this week, Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses from the UNSW and Associate Professor Michael Cowling from CQU in Queensland. Mark Fennell is my name and I am curious, are there examples of predictive technology, artificial intelligence being used in, in crime fighting overseas that you think are particularly interesting that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so one thing that's been very popular, particularly in the US, but also in parts of the UK and Europe, is what sometimes gets called predictive policing. And this is software that attempts to tell police typically, and there's a variety of different products, as you can imagine, but most of them try to tell police where to go. So, you know, two o'clock on a rainy afternoon, 
um, on the 25th of March or whatever, this is your, this is the best block to patrol because that has a higher probability of crime. Now, we don't know a lot about these tools, like the Queensland program we're discussing now. There's not a lot of transparency. The most transparency is about a tool called PredPol, which is based on an earthquake prediction model because they've published on it, and that's the model that they were using to predict the location of crime. The challenge of those, and coming back to the evaluation point, is that the police often say things like, this has led to a 60% drop in crime, or this is Y% percent accurate. But when independent studies were done that didn't involve those software companies themselves evaluating their own products or police just announcing figures, um, it turned out that there wasn't any proof that they were effective at reducing crime. So that shows us why evaluation is so crucial, why before we adopt a tool, and I mean the police, but also the society around that police, we need to understand exactly what it is we're adopting. We need to have independent evaluations done so we really get what are the impacts of this tool. And going back to the point before about social impacts, it's not simply a question that will get a prediction wrong about something happening on the planet. We could ruin people's lives. Lyria, looking at what's happening, if you were to build a system from the ground up with a set of principles as to what can and cannot be allowed with artificial intelligence before we develop the technologies, what are the principles that should be in place to kind of guide the development of this technology? I think transparency is important, but not necessarily in that sort of technical sense. But I do think we need transparency at at the level of a program. In other words, we need to understand at the program level what the tool is, who's designing it. Is this being designed by a private corporation? Um, Is this being designed, you know, in collaboration with an interdisciplinary team? Who is designing it? What are the design parameters? What are they testing for and how are they evaluating it? Is there an independent evaluation? I think it's those kinds of questions. When I talk about transparency, rather than show me all the data sets, show me the algorithm or show me what every neuron is doing as it goes into operation. And as part of that, I think, is conversations with the community around what the police might be doing and why with these kinds of tools. So that's sort of number one. Number two is, and and we sort of mentioned it, but I'm going to come back to it, is the bias problem. A lot of the time, the data sets that are being used, and that's why I want transparency about what those data sets are, have bias baked in. And a really good example of that is if I wanted to find out in Australia, where are people using offensive language? And I said, I'm going to go to a crime database and look at who's been charged with offensive language crimes and then say, aha, that's where all of the offensive language is happening. What it would turn out is there's lots of offensive language in Indigenous communities, but none at the pub and none at football games. Now, that's not true. It's not an accurate representation of the world, but it is what the crime database would say is true. So I'm going to sing a similar question to you, Michael. If if you were building this from the ground up, what sort of principles would you put in place upon which all of the future of predictive technology and and crime-fighting AI, which are words that evoke Robocop every time I say them. But what are the (laughs) principles that you would put in place? So what principles would I put in place? I I need to be really careful because I I 
the thing with computer science people is that we can be idealistic and we don't often think about biases and we don't often think about the idea that something may may be interpreted a particular way, right? So I, I totally get on board with the idea that depending on where the data comes from and how it's collected, that may make a difference to, to the, the way mo- the model is actually constructed. But ultimately, again, I, I mean, I would idealistically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to collect every piece of data that we can to get to a, a good result. And my argument would probably be that as long as the result is is predictively correct most of the time, then then does it really matter what data we've actually collected? And I, I, I'm not sure if I would eliminate or exclude any particular data. And I wonder whether maybe some of the exclusions that are listed in this tool that we're talking about now are, are exclusions for social political reasons as opposed to uh, data cleansing style reasons. So I don't know if I'd actually eliminate any any potential data, but I understand how sometimes the way that the data is collected can skew the result. So something that we often talk about in computers is a thing called the Udosky parable. And the Udosky parable kind of goes like this, right? The military goes to a bunch of researchers and they say to those researchers, we want you to build a system that recognizes tanks in the field, right? So that when we're out in the field conducting warfare, uh, if there's a tank coming, the system recognizes that and our soldiers can respond. And so in order to do that, they take all of these pictures with tanks in them and pictures that don't have tanks in them. They feed them all into a machine learning system and they train it all up and they get to a really nice percentage, right, of 90%, 95% recognition of tanks versus no tanks in the environment. The researchers give the system back to the military. The military puts it on their tanks and they come back sometime later and they say, this system's not working so well. Sometimes this system says that there is a tank when there is no tank. And then more concerningly, sometimes this system tells us there's no tank when there's actually a tank. What's going on? So the researchers take it back and they dig through the system and they work through it and they work out that they actually took all of the photos of tanks on a cloudy day and they took all the photos with no tanks on a sunny day. And so what they've done is they've tried to train a system that recognised tanks and no tanks, but in actual fact what they've done is they've trained a system that recognised cloudy and sunny days, (laughs) which is a lot less useful for the uh, military than the tank system. I mean, it just depends on what they're doing on picnic days though, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) The equivalent here of the sunny day, cloudy day is that what you're looking at often is not all of the domestic violence happening because that's not in any database. No one knows all the domestic violence happening. What you're looking at is the domestic violence reported and that is going to be its own skew in terms of the data that, uh, that is correlated with reporting as opposed to what's actually going on. That's why I told the story, good data in, good data out. And I think the data here is actually quite complicated and even more complicated perhaps than the Yudosky parable. You know, I look overseas and, you know, India and China are both implementing as a level of surveillance to bring down crime rates before they happen in areas of like terrorism, for example. Japan's, I know, was looking at, I think, predictive systems ahead of the 2020 Tokyo, well, what was the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, eventually became the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. I know that there are different examples of it around the world. And I guess one of the things that strikes out at me when I look at that is, are there certain kinds of crime, certain categories of crime that are maybe better suited to this technology, Michael? Are there, are there other kinds of crimes that maybe it could be used for in a more effective fashion? I'm not sure that there are crimes or, or things that people do that are more suited to this type of system uh, or whether or not our best approach may be to say simply that we don't use this type of system as a 
as a hammer, but more as perhaps just a guide to help us to deal with these kinds of things. And so often when I put this to my students, because I teach this uh, in a unit called IT and Society, often when I put this to my students, if we if you put it forward as a support system, if you put it forward as, well, you know, the system is just going to identify people and identify people in the Brisbane Mall that look like they might have shoplifted something and then send that information to the police and then they can act on that information accordingly, along with a whole bunch of other factors, which can include those more social metrics that we've been talking about already. Then often my students will go, okay, that's okay. As a support mechanism, I can see this working. As a, as a final decision tool, they start to get a little bit uh, icky about the whole thing. Support systems are better when they're well understood. So I think if you get information that you understand all of the strengths and weaknesses of a system, then it can work really well as a support system. But when it's too black boxed, and certainly, you know, the information about a lot of these tools is very black boxed. We don't know a lot about what's what's happening and you know what evaluations are conducted and so forth. Then I think it's it's really hard to work for humans to work out, the humans who it's meant to be supporting what to do with it. And you can tend to get bad results both ways, either over-reliance on a tool that's flawed or perhaps not relying on something that would be a lot more useful than they think it is. All right. Lyria, if this technology is growing and clearly there's there's interest in it from, from law enforcement, not just in Australia but around the world, what is it you would like to see it used for, if anything, in the future? I'd like that to be a conversation rather than a question, I think is the best way to put it. I think it needs to be a conversation about both being able to look at what crimes it is more effective for and what not. And there is some data on that already. So that um, house break-ins is an example of, of something that is, is is apparently easier to predict than certain other kinds of crimes. So, I, But I'd like to then it to be a conversation with the community. And the reason I think that's important, I'm not trying to sort of get out of the answer, is I think that when you have a hammer, things start to look like a nail. So if you have a tool that deals with types of crime A, B and C, do you then as a police department put more resources into those crimes than you might into crimes that you can't predict in the same kind of way? So I think it's a broader question about the whole strategy of policing and, and, and what their targets are and where these tools might fit in with something else. And I think that's a conversation that the community being police should really be a part of. Michael, for you, what is a version of this that you would like to see in the future, if any? Look, I think the problem I have often, um, and I think this is a problem that is common with a lot of people in computer science and ICT, is is to quote Jeff Goldblum, right? We often think about, we're so excited about whether it can be done that we don't think about whether it should be done. And even though I've taught uh, IT and society for a number of years now, I still often get excited about the technology and its possibilities without maybe thinking about some of those nuances. And so ultimately, I would love to see this tool used for all sorts of things uh, because I think ultimately artificial intelligence can help us to identify culprits that are shoplifting in the mall or to identify uh, potential cases of, of house burglary or car theft and all of those kinds of things. And if we're willing to feed all of that data into it, then I think that the outputs that we get are, are worthwhile, even if we're a little bit skeevy about the process. But perhaps I'm a little bit too idealistic and a little bit naive, and perhaps I need to be a little bit more uh, conscious of, of, of the fact that there is a bias, and I acknowledge that there is a bias and that there are issues there, uh, and that if we take these tools and we put them back in the hands of human beings, that sometimes even though 
we idealistically think that they're just there to help make sure that we identify all of those cases of house, house burglary that put in the hands of a human being, they may uh, put a twist on it that uh, makes it less useful or indeed uh, uses it in a totally inappropriate way. Well, one thing's for sure, more and more people are experimenting and piloting with the technology, so whether we like it or not, it'll likely become part of our lives. How much control and transparency we have over that, I guess we will just have to wait and see. Uh, Associate Professor Michael Cowling from CQU, thank you so much for talking to us today. Not a problem, Mark. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you. And Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses from UNSW, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me in the great conversation. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.